Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Daigle Bites ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Hi, this is Lauren Daigle. Before we start this episode of Daigle Bites, just a reminder that season two of my podcast will be available exclusively on Amazon Music. Follow Daigle Bites on Amazon Music to get every episode. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Daigle Bites podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Daigle. I'm a singer that hails from the deep swamps of Louisiana. I ventured my way up to Nashville to take the risk of jumping in on the pipe dream of singing on stages other than the ones I grew up seeing. Along this journey, I wrote a song called You Say, and what came next absolutely changed my life. I found myself in tour buses, singing on stages all over the world. And every single night, I would get asked the question, what would Lauren Daigle be doing if she hadn't pursued music? Well, this season of Daigle Bites is answering just that. And I'm bringing you along with me on this adventure. I'm inviting new friends that I've just met and old friends that I've known for a long time to come and explore what it is like to pursue their passions. I know that they've inspired me and I'm sure that they will probably do the exact same thing for you. So my absolute hope is that as you're sitting and you're listening, you then too can be inspired. You then too can ask the question, what is it that I would love to do with my life? And maybe along the way, you'll find steps to making that happen. So pull up a seat, join us in the conversation. You have a place here. This is the Dago Bites podcast on Amazon Music. Hello everybody. Welcome to the Dago Bites podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Daigle. This guest is very interesting. I was so nervous prior to this interview. <laughs> no joke. I remember sitting down and flipping through her her book, listening on Audible, trying my absolute best to fill myself with as much information as possible. It made me nervous to interview someone with so much prestige. When I was at LSU, I was studying child and family studies because I wanted to be a counselor. And then go to law school to be a pro bono lawyer for people that had been involved in trafficking, but also be able to offer them a safe place in a holistic counseling environment while representing them in a court of law. So while I was studying child and family studies at LSU, this guest was studying at Stanford and Pepperdine, and her TED Talk in 2019 became the most listened to TED Talk of the year. No pressure, right? Lori Gottlieb. She's my next guest, and she has a world of insight that we will have to actually turn our brains on for (laughs) in order to fully digest this episode. Lori Gottlieb is a psychotherapist and a New York Times bestselling author, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which has sold over a million copies and is currently being adapted as a television series. In addition to her clinical practice, she writes The Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist advice column, and is co-host to the most popular Dear Therapist podcast produced by none other than Katie Couric. She contributes regularly to the New York Times and many other publications, a member of the Advisory Council for Bring Change to Mind. She is a sought-after expert in media, such as The Today Show, Good Morning America, CBS This Morning, CNN, and NPR's Fresh Air. While sweating bullets during the beginning of this episode— I quickly realized that Lori has a wealth of information that I can actually learn from. I hope you gain a lot of wisdom from this next episode. 
Before we dive in, I want to mention that this episode lightly touches on suicidal ideation during one portion of the discussion. While this conversation is very insightful and uplifting, we advise you to use discretion as we begin. I'm so grateful you're here and now on to this impactful episode. I'm so excited that you're on the show. Thank you so much for your time. I was running around downstairs. I'm at a friend's house and I was kind of pinching myself. I'm late to just about every party, especially in culture. Uh, When it comes to fads or anything like that, I'm the last to know. And I started reading your book recently. Now I'm not a strong reader, so I've been listening to it on Audible. I am completely taken away. Like I, I even fell asleep listening to it the other day, woke up listening to it. I'm just like immersed in this book and I'm so grateful for your words. I'm so grateful for just your wisdom behind the insight that you have into human connection and story and development. It's pretty amazing. And I wanted to kind of go back to the basics, like all the way back. What was Lori like as a child? Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks so much for this conversation. I never thought that I would become either a writer or a therapist or a podcaster, any of the things that I do now. I was, though, an avid reader when I was growing up. So I just, I loved story and the human condition. And I think books kept me company. And I think that when you're reading something and you see yourself in it, there's that feeling of just incredible connection. You know, I am not alone. Oh, I'm not the only one who thinks this, says this, does this, feels this. And and I think that when I look at where I am now and what I do now, that's exactly the kind of work that I do is to help people to feel that. Yeah. I I feel like that connection in songs, when I step on stage, I always look at you know, people will share stories and they'll say, oh my gosh, this song got me through this moment, or I can't believe how close I felt to a sentiment in this, through this song. And I always talk about the human condition. I love that you used that phrase because we realize when we actually are vulnerable and share stories, for me, it's through song, through you, it's writing. There's something so profound about realizing that we're not that far apart. Right. And Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. People ask all the time about songwriting. Where do you draw inspiration and what keeps you inspired? And, you know, I often think about the human condition and I feel like there's been so many times in life where I've either walked through shame or sorrow or guilt and it's looking next to me and seeing, wow, if I'm walking through this experience, I bet the person next to me has experienced this at some point in their life as well. In your book, you mentioned that Robert Frost said the only way to get out is to go through. And that to me is something I feel like regardless of writing styles or whatever, whenever we're sitting with people and we're next to people in the midst of their story, there's something really beautiful about how we're able to manage the through part together, through in quotes. It's pretty beautiful. What what advice would you have for people who are going through something right now and feel overwhelmed or saturated by the circumstances around them or even within themselves? Well, I'm so glad you brought that up because in maybe you should talk to someone. One of the very first things that I say at the beginning is that my most significant credential as a therapist is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race. 
that we are all more the same than we are different. I know what it's like to be a person in the world, can't be human and not have struggled in some way, shape, or form. And so when you talk about the only way out is through, it's 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 through, but not alone. It's through in connection, that we grow in connection with others. And and that's why in the book, where I follow the lives of these four very different patients who seem very different on the surface, when you realize, wait a minute, they're all, we're all pretty much the same. And I'm the fifth patient as I go through my own struggle and I go to my own therapist. You can see that we're growing in connection with one another, that nobody is really, everyone feels very alone. We all feel so alone in what we're going through. And yet how we get through it is through these connections. And it's it's connection with other, but it's also connection with self. And sometimes we abandon ourselves. And that's what you see so much through the book too, is how much we think the problem is someone else. You know, everybody comes into therapy and they're like, they want something to change, but what they want to change is someone else or something else. Like change this person in my life. But then the question is, what is your response to those people? Why are you in relationship with that person? And do you need to be in relationship? And are you contributing somehow to the problem? Not to blame people, but to say, what is your role in this dance that's been going on and on and on? What what could you do differently that might change something in your life? What do you think drives the narrative of isolation? You know, when we experience something, we feel like we're the only one experiencing. What What do you think drives that narrative? I think it's shame. I think what happens is that we feel like something is wrong with us because part of it is we don't talk enough about this stuff. So a lot of people feel like, you know, what they see is sort of the social media view of the world. Um, Even though intellectually we know that people are posting things in a way that they want to be presented. We, We all know that. But, but we still have an emotional reaction to it. So we start to feel like we have our face pressed up against the glass, like everybody else is living this life and I'm the only one who's not, or I'm the only one who's struggling in this particular way. And what I'm trying to do is kind of democratize therapy and not even just therapy, but emotional health by, you know, by putting the book out there and by doing my Dear Therapist podcast where you can hear sessions every week. So people can hear, even if it isn't their exact problem, they hear, oh, wow, I also have that difficulty with my parent or my partner or my Mm -hmm. boss or my sibling or myself, right? And I think it's so healing. And and that's where we go back to when I was this little girl reading these books. This was before the internet and social media and, and, and podcasts and all these things. Um, I think it's so important that people have access to this, that people can know, you know, you don't have to feel shame around being human, that this is this is the glory of being human. It might not feel good all the time, but it's also the glory of of our existence. Yeah, it's a definite proximity to being alive. I loved in the book, there was this moment that you mentioned all the reasons why people go to therapy, whether it's, you know, I'm stuck in the middle of a problem and I just need advice to get how to navigate it, or whether it's, you know, there's a person that's causing whatever. You list all these reasons, or if it's a a decision that I need to make and I can't overcome whatever I need to overcome in order to make that decision. And that in that moment, I was like, wow, I, I have always wondered where the starting point would be. And I've done counseling. I went to this place in, in Nashville. It's called Porter's Call. And 
Uh, have you are you familiar with Porter's Call? No. Okay, so it's fascinating how they started. Basically, all of these record labels got together. I guess artist or management, whatever, went to the record labels and said, "Hey, you have all of these degrees of help for." artist. You have voice lessons, you have physical therapists out on the road with them. You have an exercise trainer out on the road with them to get them in tip top shape. But the thing you don't have is a therapist. You don't have somebody for the mind and for the emotions and all the things that are involved with being an artist. And we see a great deficit here. And so the record labels of Nashville got together and they do fundraisers every year and they pay for the program, Porter's Call, to to be alive, honestly. And it's specifically geared for artists. So mm-hmm. artists go in, they don't have to pay anything. And all the overhead is covered by fundraising and by the record labels. And I remember the first time that I went was in a period of dealing with uh, severe depression, I'd say, but also suicidal ideation. and that started from just being overwhelmed with all that was coming my way. And I I love the way that my therapist greeted me was everything is, is going to be okay. Everything mm. actually already is okay. And there's there was something about that revelation of, okay, she is identifying this as the human condition more than she is identifying this as, oh gosh, okay, we've got to, dive in head first because something is at such disarray in your life that would get you to this point, right? There was something so personable about her saying, no, 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 this is sheerly the human condition. And now I, I'm able to look back in the, at that experience and think, wow, this was so holistic for me. And I didn't know where the starting point was. And hearing these lists, now it was like this other thing where I could go now. Because I know I identified with like three things from that list. What are some personal stories where people have hit walls? How would you navigate them around kind of feeling the stuckness as you described in in your book? Well, first of all, I'm so glad that you brought up this question of sort of why people go to therapy, because I think there's so many misconceptions about that. And and as you can see, and maybe you should talk to someone that people come for all kinds of reasons, but it doesn't have to be a crisis. I feel like going to therapy is like getting a really good second opinion on your life from someone who's not in your life. And the reason I say someone who's not in your life is because it's like the difference between, and I write about this in, in the book too, the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. So idiot compassion is what our friends do. So we say, listen to what happened. And we say, oh my gosh, that other person was wrong and you're right and they're terrible. And you know, and, and it doesn't help you to see, maybe there's a pattern going on with you. Maybe you keep getting into the same kind of situation over and over, right? It's kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. We never say that to our friends. Even if we see it. Yeah. We won't say it. That's that's idiot compassion. It doesn't really help us to move forward. It might feel really good in the moment to feel validated, but sometimes you need someone to give you wise compassion. And that's what a therapist does, is they hold up a mirror to you to help you to see something about yourself that maybe you haven't been willing or able to see. 
right? And so that's where you can see, you know, how am I getting stuck? How am I self-sabotaging? How do I get in my own way? Why am I having trouble with this kind of thing? Relationally, you know, why do I have trouble in these kinds of relationships? Or why do I have trouble making decisions? Or why do I have trouble with career choices? Or why do I have trouble with my family? Or why do I, why do I feel anxious and depressed so much of the time? That's where the wise compassion comes in. And the other thing is that when we talk about why people come to therapy, in our culture, we have this very odd view about the difference between physical health and emotional health. So we don't do this hierarchy of pain that we do with our emotional health about whether to go see somebody. So when you, like, let's say you break an arm, you're not like, oh my gosh, I don't have stage four cancer. Somebody else has it worse than me. So I can't go, you know, get my arm x-rayed and, and get a cast for my arm. We don't do that. We're not, we don't compare it to something else. We're like, I need help with this. I'm going to go get help with this. With our emotional health, it's kind of like, yeah, I have trouble sleeping or I've been having trouble with relationships or I'm, you know, I cry sometimes and I don't know why, or I'm really anxious a lot of the time. But compared to whatever you compare it to in your mind, I have a roof over my head and food on the table. So it's not that bad. Right. And then I people do that don't all go. the time. <laughs> Right? So we think yeah. like, well, it's not that bad. Why does it have to be, quote, that bad? And who's the who's the arbiter of that? Who's the judge of that? Like who created this hierarchy of pain where you have to hit a certain mark before you're allowed to go see someone for that or get help? Just like you, if you had a cold, you might go to your doctor because it's been lingering for too long. You wouldn't be like, well, it has to be pneumonia. <laughs> and so we yeah. don't do that. And so what happens is people come to my office when they're having the emotional equivalent of like a heart attack. Right. It's not like the chest pain. It's like the heart attack. Yeah. And and they waited until they were having the heart attack. And then at that point, first of all, it's it you've been suffering unnecessarily for so long, for maybe weeks or months or maybe years. Why would you do that to yourself? And then it's also sometimes a little bit harder to deal with because now you've gotten to a place where we got to get you out of that place that you've gotten to, get you back to baseline, and then talk about the underlying issues that sort of got you there in the first place. Whereas if you'd just come in, we could have talked about this in a way where you wouldn't have had to suffer so much. So I, I really think it's important that people understand that therapy is not for a crisis necessarily. It's just like, why would you go to any any person, like like you were saying earlier, like why would you go to a voice coach if you want to work on your voice? Why wouldn't you want to work on your emotional health? I, I remember I was in, I guess I was probably in the seventh or eighth grade. And one of my friend's parents went through a divorce. And I remember watching the trauma of that unfold and how they you know, went to counseling or whatever. And then fast forward years, a close relative of mine went through a divorce and went to therapy. And I remember as a child having this connection between it has to be an earth shattering event that must take place for you to receive help like that. And now we talk about the mental health crisis in the United States in particular, because I was one of the, I was one of the people that was like, is America just being dramatic? Is it really, it, are we, I mean, should we maybe go talk to some like Somalian, Somalian refugees and see what's really going on? How you're saying like, well, the house is burning down, but I'm sure I could save a couple of things. I feel like there was a point in time where I was like, 
what what is really the underlying thing going on here? And is this America just having another thing to stand up about? Or is there some actual weight to this? And I love in the book where you say, newsflash, it's actually, we are not the leading team, if you will, when it comes to a country leading the charge of therapy. It's actually, was it Argentina, then Australia, Mm -hmm. then you list all these countries and we were like sixth, I think, sixth in line. I feel like sometimes, you know how when like the, and I say this with genuine care, but sometimes when you live in a place of such comfort or such luxury or privilege, if you want to use that word, like when you live in a place of that, it's almost like the kid who didn't get the toy. And I look, there's moments that I look at that in society and wonder what is it that has caused such emotional contempt, if you will, or just emotional sabotage within our country? Well, first of all, I just wanted to say something about what you said about privilege, because yeah. I think that that there's there's no cure for being human. Yeah. So privilege is doesn't inoculate you from being human. And, and, and I think that a lot of people, you know, say, oh, well, this person has this or that or whatever they have, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that they aren't a human going through the world and struggling in whatever ways they struggle. I just, I think that's a big misconception. Um, you see people from all walks of life who have anxiety, depression, relational difficulties, difficult upbringings, whatever it might have been. I want to touch on one thing with, with that. You also mentioned in the book, how the internet is like a non-prescription painkiller that everybody escapes to and swiping on Instagram and, you know, blazing trails on the internet for hours and hours and hours. I wonder if that has fed into the system of emotional discomfort or emotional disarray. What are your thoughts on that? How do you, what are the things that you've seen sitting behind the desk or talking with people that come in? And what are some societal perspectives that you've been able to gain? You were talking about this quote from maybe you should talk to someone where one of my, when I was training to be a therapist, one of my colleagues had said, the internet is um, the most effective short-term non-prescription painkiller out there. And, and what this person meant was that we just mindlessly scroll through the internet whenever we have a feeling, an uncomfortable feeling, whenever we don't want to feel something, just like we do that with too much food or too much alcohol or, you know, a short temperedness or an inability to sleep, whatever the thing is that when you're trying to numb out your feelings. And people think that if I just numb out my feelings, I won't have to feel it. But that's not true because numbness isn't the absence of feelings. Numbness is a sense of being overwhelmed by too many feelings. And then they come out in all of these other ways, like we just said, like that mindless scrolling through the internet, like what we do with food or alcohol, or we, you know, get into, we have drama in our relationships, or it's that way of sometimes it'll come up in quiet moments and then we try to numb it out. And so the thing about feelings is people feel like, oh, I don't want to feel that feeling. That's not a, that's not a quote unquote good feeling. There are no good or bad feelings. Feelings are just feelings. All feelings are useful. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is our feelings are like a compass. They tell us, they give us information about what needs to happen in our lives. So if you are feeling angry, did somebody cross a boundary of yours? 
did somebody do something that you didn't like and you're not voicing that to them? If you're feeling sad, what what's not working in your life? So what can you do differently? If you don't notice the sadness, if you don't take the time to say, this is a gift because it's giving me information so that I can make things different or better in my life. Same with anxiety, right? It's a signal. It's a signal. It's a very primitive signal, right? From from long ago, this is why we're wired this way, that anxiety is good. It tells us, wait a minute, danger here, right? Um, And there are different kinds of anxiety. There's productive anxiety and unproductive anxiety. So productive anxiety is there's an external threat, right? Like somebody isn't treating you well or whatever it is. Like people should be anxious because if you're not anxious, you're not going to protect yourself. It's a protective mechanism. That's productive anxiety. It means that you take action. It's saying, wait a minute, ding, 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 ding. There's a problem here. I got to protect myself. Unproductive anxiety is what many of us do. It's that obsessive rumination. Like you just think about it over and over and you like spin it around in your head and it doesn't go anywhere. You're not doing anything different. It's like, that's where anxiety is maybe not so helpful. And then you can say, okay, I need to, I'm not facing something. What is this distracting me from? Because there's something that I'm, it's, it's basically any of these ways of, of coping with feelings that are not feeling the feeling are about how do I distract myself from the feeling? So you want to make sure that you're using your feelings in a productive way. And that's where therapy can be really helpful is because you get to feel your feelings and someone can be there to guide you and say, okay, let's see what we can do with that feeling. Let's use that feeling in a productive way. I love that. (laughs) I I have like a list of things. I'm like, oh yeah, that anger turned into rage there. I should have probably assessed that. I should have, I should probably understand why was I feeling, or that moment of sadness turned into deep grief, deep sorrow. How do I, what was the sign? Where was I being told something that I just wasn't paying attention? And it's a lot of, it's, it's a lot of unprocessed feelings, right? So like when you were talking about sadness turning into grief, it's that unprocessed grief that people feel like, well, I should be over this, or it wasn't that big of a deal. And then yeah. they, they basically minimize their own experience instead of saying, oh, this really was a loss and I need to, I need to sit through this. Where did you learn the art of compassion? I don't know that you really teach compassion. I think you model compassion. So just as a parent, for example, you know, my son is incredibly compassionate. And I, I think that he sees that in in the people in his life, in the world. And I actually learned compassion from him a lot. So I think that it's it's one of these things that kind of it's like compassion breeds compassion. When you when you see compassion around you, you become more compassionate. When you are more compassionate, other people around you become more compassionate. And that doesn't mean like we're all saints. It doesn't mean that we all have compassion all the time. But I think just knowing that there's a reason that someone is behaving the way they're behaving. And usually people are speaking the unspeakable through their behavior. So sometimes they can't actually speak it to you, which would be the more compassionate way, but they're acting it out in a way that comes across as incredibly abrasive. You see that in, maybe you should talk to someone with the very first 
person that I, you know, the first patient that I talk about, John, and he's incredibly insulting to me and unlikable. (laughs) And, you know, he, he thinks he's better than everybody else. And he's really hard to to be around in the beginning. And by the end of the book, people come to love him the most because not yeah. only does he become more compassionate, but we learn more about him and we understand how he used that as a, as a protective mechanism, mm-hmm. the way he was behaving. So I think when it's hard sometimes to find compassion for people, we have to imagine that there must be some reason that they're acting the way they're acting, that there must be some something that they haven't been able to to get compassion for. Yeah. And and so I just think that that when we can be mindful of that, we we not only are make the world a better place, but we we make our lives better. There's there's something too about self-compassion that I think we have trouble with. Sometimes it's it's easier to be compassionate for other people, but it's hard to feel compassion for ourselves. And so you know, one of the things that often when I'm when I'm giving talks, I'll say to people, you know, raise your hand. Who's the person that you talk to most in the course of your life? Is it your partner? Is it your parent? Is it your sibling? Is it your best friend? I get lots of hands for that. You know, everyone's like, yeah, that's the person. But really, the person we talk to most in the course of our lives is ourselves. And what we say to ourselves isn't always kind or true or useful. And so I had this therapy client who was so hard on herself. She just could not have compassion for herself. Every little thing, she was so self-critical, but she didn't even realize it because most of us don't. And so I said to her, I want you to go home and I want you to write down everything you say to yourself. I want you to really listen to what you, how you talk to yourself and write it down and come back next week and we'll talk about it. So she does that. She comes back the next week and she starts reading it. And she says, I can't even read this. She started crying. And she said, I am such a bully to myself. And there were things like she caught her reflection as she was like walking by, you know, a window. And she said, oh my God, you look terrible. Whereas like she did not look terrible. And you would never, by the way, say that to a friend, not because of idiot compassion, but because you truly would not think your friend looked terrible. Or she she was typing an email and she she made a typo and she the voice in her head literally said to her, you're so stupid. We do that to ourselves all the time. We are bullies to ourselves. You wouldn't think your friend was stupid if she made a typo, right? When she was typing an email. So no, just not at all. all day long, there's this litany of criticism, of self-criticism, and we don't even realize it. So I think that compassion has to start with self-compassion. Mm-hmm. And people don't like that. They say, well, that's so narcissistic or that's so self-indulgent. No, because self-compassion breeds compassion for others. If you can mm-hmm. be kind to yourself, it's going to be easier for you to be kind to others too. I've seen where the opposite is true too, what you're saying, the self-criticism. A lot of times the people that are the most critical outwardly are experiencing oh, such triply critical- so to themselves. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's wild. Anytime you see someone who's at the store and they're just flying off the handle, there are moments that I'm like, wow, the internal turmoil they must build for themselves must be wildly abrasive, as you used that word earlier. I, I saw that movie Wonder. I mm. and that movie. Gosh, I loved that movie so much because you see how an act of kindness actually does become contagious. And I love the societal impact of that. One act of kindness, rip. it's like when you push the dominoes and they just start falling down one by one, hitting the next, you know? I feel like our world would be such a 
even more, it's already profound, but in an even more profound place if we exchanged criticism with compassion or if we exchanged criticism and judgment with kindness. So I think that one thing that's really contagious is negativity. And, and, and I don't, I'm not one of these like, oh, let's all be optimistic. And, you know, I'm a therapist, so I'm, I'm definitely not that. <laughs> um, meaning I want people to speak their truth. I want people to feel the range of feelings. But I do think that when we don't have self-compassion, we tend to self-flagellate and we tend to be like really, really unkind. And we think if I self-flagellate, I will hold myself responsible and do better. No, you won't. Because if you self-flagellate, you will feel shame. You will be shaming yourself. And think of it like with a child. If you said to a child, like they did something and you want them to do something in a different way or improve upon something, you wouldn't shame them. You wouldn't self-flagellate because then they don't get better. They don't learn. They don't, you know, feel motivated or feel safe enough to take a risk and try something new or try something differently. But if you give them a lot of compassion, like, hey, here's what happened this time. Let's look at that. And maybe we can do it differently the next time, they're going to live so much differently because of that. So I, I think that's really important when we think about, um, about positivity and negativity um, and how we can approach people. And I think that even in a household, negativity, like people who complain all the time, like we all know those people, right? And we can all be those people too. People who complain a lot just spread this negativity I have tried, um, I've urged other people to try, which is, can you get through an entire day without complaining about anything? That doesn't Ooh. mean that you like swallow your feelings. It doesn't mean any of that. It's just, can you get through the day without complaining? And it really changes significantly how you feel throughout the day. What do you think has to happen first? The feeling or the action? It's about... I'm feeling whatever I'm feeling in the moment, and I can feel that, but I don't have to complain. Meaning I can I can acknowledge I feel sad or I feel angry, but then I don't have to go into a whole litany of, and then this person did that. Or I don't think people realize how much they complain in the course of a day. There is a definite shift that happens when you when you go from the feeling to that one next sentence, exactly what you just said. Well, yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's the difference between going from just an orientation of of deprivation to an orientation of abundance. And if we can switch that orientation, and again, this isn't just um, you know like a Pollyanna, like everything's great. It's not that at all. It's just I think that sometimes if we bathe in the complaining, we feel that we are living in a place of deprivation. If we can stop complaining we notice more of what we have and we are moving through the day with a feeling of abundance. I love that. Which, and when which... you're around people in a household who complain a lot, it is very contagious and you start complaining too. So just, you know, it's, it's to notice, you know, whether you're living with a partner or children or, you know, other family members or roommates, whatever, just notice like, what is the vibe in this place? Mm-hmm. How are we feeding toxicity versus starving it? Okay, so I know that our time is is getting short. What is one of, as a therapist, what's the most difficult thing and the most rewarding thing? 
I find it incredibly rewarding. You know, I think that a lot of people say, oh, you're a therapist. That must be so depressing because you hear people's problems all day. And I look at it very differently. I feel like I have the most inspiring job there is because I get to see people as they really are. And I get to see people week to week make these heroic choices. They're doing something that they've never been able to do before. The, the smallest thing, right? Because I always say that most big transformations come about from the tiny, almost imperceptible steps that we take along the way. And I get to witness those. I get to witness those tiny, almost imperceptible steps that people take so that months or a year later or whatever it is, somebody is in a completely different place in their lives. And I see them take risks. I see them, you know, just really go outside of their comfort zones and just come out of their shells and break patterns and 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 fall back and get back on track and you know all of that. And and I think you know the biggest surprise when when we talk about what's difficult, I remember when I was training, a lot of us interns, we we said to our, our clinical supervisors like what if we don't like the person? You know, what do we do <laughs> if, if we're bored or we don't like the person? And the supervisor said there's something likable in everyone. It's your job to find it. And we're like, yeah, right. But aren't there some people that you just won't like, right? Um, but actually, I found that to be true, that there is something likable about everyone, and it is our job to find it. And I always find it. Yes. You mentioned that, and maybe you should talk to someone. You mentioned that about John. I remember yeah. you saying, like, who knew that he actually had likable qualities, even though he was splattering all over the place, even John was a likable man. Thank you so much for your time, Lori. Thank you. Thank you. I'm yeah, super well, thank grateful. Thank you so much for the conversation. Yes. I, I so appreciate it. Lori, can you give me all the, the information as to where people can find you and how to follow up with our conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So they can read my book. Maybe you should talk to someone wherever they get their books. They can listen to my podcast, the Dear Therapist podcast, wherever they listen to podcasts. They can watch my TED Talk at TED.com. They can follow me online. Um, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. And uh, they can go to my website, LoriGottlieb.com, to find all of this. Awesome. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Coming up on this season of Dago Bites, I'm bringing on NASA astronaut Shane Kimbrough from space. Yes, you'll be hearing all the things about astronaut life while he is moving 17,500 miles per hour around the Earth. But that's not all. You'll be hearing from the one and only Kristen Griffith Van Riot from Netflix's Big Flower Fight, best-selling author and top podcaster Annie Downs, Olympic gold medalist Ryan Murphy, the inspirational and magical Bob Goff, Season two of Dagobites is available exclusively on Amazon Music. Dagobites is an Amazon Music podcast hosted by me, Lauren Daigle, and produced by Elizabeth Evans Media Productions. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Daigle Bites ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Murder on My Mind, a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus, explores the circumstances leading up to the murder of two young men and the mistrials of the man accused of killing them. Up-and-coming rapper YNW Melly gained notoriety in the hip-hop world for his shocking lyrics and criminal exploits. When two of his best friends were gunned down in a drive-by shooting, investigators suspected the young rapper staged the scene. But after not one, but two trials that ended in hung juries and new evidence that may place YNW Melly at the scene of the crime, his trial has been paused indefinitely. With countless twists and turns, Law and Crime covers all angles of the case and begs the question, is this young artist the victim of a witch hunt or a silver-tongued devil who's evil to the core? Listen to Murder on My Mind exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.